Healthcare, a study in contrasts. This is Industry Focus. Hi, fools. Uh, healthcare analyst Michael Douglas here today with regular Industry Focus contributor Todd Campbell. I'm filling in for Christine Hargis because she is just getting back from vacation. And we've got a great show for you today. Todd, welcome back. I'm glad to be here. And uh, it's good to be talking to you again, Michael. It's been a little while since you've been here on the show. Yeah, they, they decided to pull me off the bench as a sub. So I'm, uh, I'll, I'll take that. Also, the sports metaphors will end right there because, unfortunately, I don't know th- – uh, I don't know the second baseline from the uh, um, free throw line, um, but, I, but I hear there's a difference, and maybe they're even about different teams. I'm not sure. Anyway, um, so today we decided, uh, Todd and I were talking about the show beforehand, and, and we decided to kind of ask um, about a pair of companies, sort of how, how should I think about them right now? So let's start with Valiant Pharmaceuticals. How should I think about Valiant Pharmaceuticals? Now, Valiant has been in the news a lot. And I mean, there's just been a ton going on with this company. Um, its market cap has kind of collapsed compared to where it was um, a year or two years ago. Um, it's down a, just a, a massive percentage. And it's been name checked, you know, it's been name checked in Congress. Um, prescription drug pricing has been name checked on. Um, and the presidential campaigns. And so there's just a lot going on with this company. Todd, let's go ahead and go through the history, kind of how we got to this place, and then we'll then we'll answer the question how to think about Valiant today. Sound good? Absolutely. That sounds great. Yeah, I, I think that most most of our listeners have probably heard um, Christine and I chat a little bit about Valiant in the past. Maybe you've read some of the stuff that we have up on themotleyfool.com. Um, but to give a little bit of quick background for people who may not be as familiar with the story, Valiant Pharmaceuticals has built itself up into a major pharmaceutical player by using a strategy that involves buying existing medications, repricing them higher, and then relaunching them. And that strategy, as you can imagine, has been has come under a tremendous amount of fire in the past year uh, following revelations, uh, I guess you could say, stemming from uh, now infamous Martin Shkreli's uh, Turing Pharmaceuticals bid to buy or acquisition of Daraprim, a 60-year-old drug, uh, to which they increased the price by 5,000%. Now, Valiant didn't go as far as that. Not quite uh, that far, but... No, but you know they are being held accountable for what some people think is an egregious uh, price hike uh, on two heart uh, disease drugs that um, Valiant had acquired early in 2000. And 15. Those two drugs, Valiant increased the price on by 537% and 237% respectively after they bought them. So as you can imagine, uh, that kind of put them under the microscope um, as you know, media attention and politicians and payers all started to swarm and say, this isn't fair. Um, these price increases are ridiculous. But wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, um, there is more in what what's happening. I mean, they, I mean, it really has been sort of the opposite of the gift that keeps on giving, right? It has just been the story that just keeps getting worse. The scrutiny that got the light that got shined, if you will, on Valiant um, led to the discovery that Valiant had been relying on a specialty pharmacy known as Philidor uh, to fulfill some of its prescriptions to patients. Philidor was basically um, substituting wherever possible the Valiant's uh, more expensive branded drugs instead of lower-cost generics. 
um, an internal review that Valiant, you know, conducted determined that, yeah, they probably shouldn't have been using Philidor the way they were. So they've since gotten rid of that relationship. But, you know, the, there's been all sorts of other things that have come out since then, including, you know, some concerns that maybe the accounting practices uh, at the company are suspect. Um, there could be a restatement, uh, uh, relatively minor, but still a restatement of, of revenue from 2014 into 2015. All sorts of questions basically being raised that ultimately now have led to the departure, uh, soon departure, if you will, of their CEO and the uh, kind of, I guess you'd say the, 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 the brain behind this whole buyer buy reprice uh, relaunch strategy Michael Pearson yeah and 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 I think this point has to be emphasized right so um, when people talk about investing and they talk about companies um, you know you're, you'll often hear people talking about valuation you'll often hear them talking about growth prospects you'll often hear them talking about the mergers and acquisitions strategy I mean these are all things that uh, fundamental investors talk about and think about what that really comes down to, what all three of those really come down to is um, leadership and company culture, um, at least in my mind. Because if you have a leadership that is very good at allocating capital, then you're going to have a better mergers and acquisition strategy. Um, if you've got a, a leadership that is really smart about finding new opportunities for growth and then scaling them, then you're going to have hopefully great growth opportunities um, and hopefully good stability for the company. And so for the person... Michael Pearson, who's been so key to so many investing theses around Valiant to leave and to have apparently at least potentially contributed to a lot of these internal issues, that really calls into question that investing thesis. Yeah. I mean, when things were great, things were great, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and now things are not great. And of course, he's being held accountable for that. The, you know, the board is going to find a new CEO and get that board is going to put that someone new in place. Um, and hopefully, they'll be able to kind of get their arms around, you know, what needs to happen to right the ship, if you will. But the, the challenges are big. I mean, whoever mm -hmm. comes in has been saddled with a mountain level of debt because Pearson was so acquisitive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the other things we should always remind investors of is that, you know, there are two ways that companies report, you know, their financials. They report them on a gap basis uh, and they report them on a non-gap basis. And a non-gap or adjusted basis, oftentimes um, in situations where companies are very acquisitive, um, may not be the best way to look at the company because it's very hard to figure out all of the moving pieces and how these acquisitions are flowing through uh, to the bottom line. You know, if you look at a gap basis, Valiant's been losing money. If you look at it on a non-gap basis, they're making money. So that's something for investors to keep in mind with highly acquisitive companies, just to make sure that you're considering both the gap and the non-gap uh, and taking the non-GAAP results with a little bit of a grain of salt. Yeah, or at least understanding how they came to it, right? So, um, so when you think about how 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 a Valiant or another company calculates it, I mean, usually um, adjusted earnings are they're zeroing out things like one-time expenses, which are often acquisition expenses. Um, but really, the key thing there is just to know the fine print and to know what they're zeroing out, why they're zeroing it out, and sort of building that into your own sort of thought process around the company. Um, and that's always a little bit of a struggle, I think, with everything, um, because often adjusted 
earnings you know, do give you kind of a better sense of the company from the people who know it best. At the same time, it does create this possibility that you're getting two different stories and you really need to kind of reconcile them together. I absolutely agree with that. The, um, you know, and that's why, again, with acquisition-friendly companies yeah. especially, um, you, know, you and I talked a little bit about the onset about trying to figure out um, you know, how you should think about Valiant as we go forward. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that you know, as investors, we have to, to temper our enthusiasm. I mean, this speaks right to what we were just talking about with. I mean, if you look at it on a non-GAAP basis – Shares are undeniably cheap. You know, mm-hmm. even though they've revised down their guidance and now think that they're only going to make, I think it's between nine fifty and ten fifty in earnings per share on an adjusted basis in two thousand sixteen. Well, now you're talking about a P ratio on a forward basis like less than three, right? right. So it, the first thing you think of is, wow, screaming bargain, right? Right. Uh, but you really should probably look more or think more about this company as a potential turnaround candidate. Rather than say candidate that's an investment that's already in its turnaround. Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good point. I mean, really, in in a lot of ways, they've kind of hit, um, you know, with with the departure of leadership and with all these revelations, um, they're certainly in a in a in a rough spot right now. And what'll be interesting to see is what they do from here. Of course, the first step of that is getting that 10K filed. Um, which they need to do by April 29th, I want to say. Yeah, they plan on doing it by April 29th. This is really important because, you know, they owe $30.9 billion, and they only got $1.4 billion book, uh, bucks on, on the books. So if debt holders say, hey, listen, you didn't file, which means you broke a covenant on these, on these loans, and we're going to cl- now say that you're in default, well, then there could be quite a cash crunch that develops at the company right. because of that. So yeah, you got to get those things filed, and they got to be right the first time. Absolutely. Um, thinking about um, thinking about future leadership of the company, I think what's going to be very interesting is you know you've got activist Bill uh, investor Bill Ackman has a nine percent stake in Valiant, um, and Ackman's joining the board. So he's got two board seats now uh, for Pershing Square. You've got to think that he's going to be pretty active in terms of helping name new leadership and mold the company's future. Got to get an insider in there that really knows what they're doing and has very strong relationships with payers. Yeah. Because if you're not using Philidor anymore and you're launching you know, new distribution models, you need to have somebody who's got vast experience in being able to, to manage relationships with payers. So I think having an industry... A former CEO of, of a major pharmaceutical company come in would certainly restore some confidence. Um, and, and again, that restoring confidence, that's going to start from the, the top. It's going to be top down. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think that, you know, think about this company as a potential turnaround, not one that's quite in it yet, but that could be involved in a turnaround soon. Right. Absolutely. I think that's uh, that's very fair. And I am very happy to continue to watch Valiant. Uh, and this story develop from the sidelines. Todd, let's hop on over to GW Pharmaceuticals, really kind of the, in some ways, kind of the opposite story, right? A big marijuana breakthrough for this uh, cannabinoid company. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us the background? This is a huge breakthrough. And it's a, I'm going to say that it's a much needed breakthrough. Yeah. You know, if you go back to 2013, 2014, 
everybody was thinking medical marijuana is the, the wave of the future. You've got 23 states that have approved medical marijuana and uh, possession in some form. You've got states like Colorado and California that allow dispensaries to dispense um, you know, certain strains of marijuana that can mm -hmm. be used to treat uh, various maladies. Um, you've got all of this momentum, yet there's still a big gap between the anecdotal evidence of marijuana helping patients and the scientifically proven evidence of marijuana helping patients. Right. Um, which, of course, brings us through to this breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, last year, GW Pharmaceuticals um, fell short on three very important trials that were studying uh, a marijuana's use uh, in cancer pain. They also stumbled in a trial that was evaluating marijuana's use in schizophrenia patients. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very important to be able to, to show investors that and everybody in the community, all the advocates, marijuana advocates, that yes, you can take marijuana and marijuana can help uh, in some indications, what what happened in this in in you know uh, at GW Pharmaceuticals last week is they said yes we have shown in one phase three which is a late stage trial mm -hmm. that patients with a certain type of childhood onset epilepsy can see the number of seizures they suffer every month reduced significantly by thirty nine percent by taking a purified version of CBD, which is a cannab uh, cannab uh, cannabinoid that is found in the marijuana plant. So again, right. this isn't a test that's you know basically giving them um, you know marijuana and telling them to smoke it. Right. It's it's a, a, a medically derived therapy uh, that's coming from the marijuana plant's uh, chemical cannabinoids right. and being applied in this in this setting. Yeah, and uh, you know by comparison, you know. Folks uh, receiving placebo only saw an 11% improvement in the number of seizures. So that's a pretty big difference. Um, and there's a second trial readout in the second half of this year. Um, and then they've got a number of other potential uh, potential readouts in the coming years. Yeah, epilepsy, um, especially childhood onset of epilepsy like Dravet syndrome, which this trial was conducted in. Right. Uh, Lennox Gestalt syndrome, sorry. Say that three uh, times fast. Yeah, right. um, you know those trials are there's a there's a significant unmet need. Okay, mm -hmm. these are debilitating diseases for patients, and and neither of these are very adequately controlled by existing anticonvulsants that are on the market. So, right. you know, the thinking here is that okay, if we succeed in the first Dravet syndrome uh, trial, and we can put up good results in two other phase three trials in in Lennox Gestalt syndrome. Um, then maybe we can file for FDA approval at some point, maybe by the end of this year. And if we have fast, they have fast track status on the Dravat syndrome indication. So theoretically, you could have GW Pharmaceuticals launching its first marijuana derived epilepsy drug in 2017. In the U.S., yeah. That in would, the U.S. Yeah, that would be uh, that would be potentially huge. Of course, these patient populations are fairly small. Right. And again, this goes to, you know, kind of what we were talking about before, which is trying to figure out, you know, how, how should I think about this uh, company and how should I think about this development at the company? You know, there's only 5,400 patients in the United States with Dravat syndrome. Um, you know, if you slap a $16,000 price tag, which is basically what the company gets for a, 
there, there are other marijuana drug which is available in Europe called Sativex on that. You're really only talking about an annualized sales pace of I think it's like $86 million. Right. Okay. Round it to a GW Pharmaceuticals has a $1.8 billion market cap. Yeah, which is reflecting and, and it's interesting about GW because usually when you see a market cap like that and an you know, an immediate drug that doesn't have like enormous sales potential, it seems at least at least based on some of these initial indications, you're thinking, oh, okay, follow-on indications, or you're thinking there must be something else in the pipeline that looks really, really good. Interestingly with GW doesn't really seem to be the case with either. There's just not that there doesn't appear to be that much commercial opportunity at least in the next few years for the company. Well, you could probably you could make the argument and model that this could theoretically be, you know, a a drug that generates if you include the, you know, LGS indication, you know, somewhere between 100 and 200 million bucks. I mean, that's that, but that's a guesstimate, right? And right. we all know that whenever we make assumptions on well, what the peak sales forecast of a drug are, we run into a lot of trouble. So yeah. you, know, you got to rein that expectation in, probably lowball rather than highball that. The other thing that investors should get bear in mind is that, you know, if GW Pharmaceuticals is proving that, you know, CBD helps epileptic, epileptics, well, some amount of their market share may go to the dispensaries in these states um, that are selling, you know, extracts that are high in CBD. Sure. So they could end up competing against dispensaries, which probably are going to be cheaper. Um, you know, I mean, it will be interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. And then, of course, there's also the risk that, you know, this indicates uh, or, or I should say, fuels R&D efforts at competitors. Right. Um, and then you've got a number of different, you know, competing therapies that hit the market. Good for patients, but not necessarily good for investors. Yeah, well, and that's what's been interesting about the marijuana market is it's just so weird. You know, I mean, because you have this bifurcation where um, – where you know it's a controlled substance, but in some cases, some states are supporting it. You know, the FDA is doing this stuff with GW and with competitors like Insys looking at CBD compounds, um, and and it's there's a lot of uncertainty, um, and especially given GW's market cap and um, what at least the initial sales look like. Um, for me, this is clearly still a stay away story. Um, really interesting, really uh, exciting. They'll hopefully be able to, to find something that that makes life better for these patients with Dravet syndrome and some of these other um, indications that we're talking about, but not an investment necessarily yeah. that, that a, we're a interested in. A big win jumping. for patients, yeah. um, but maybe not as, as big a, uh, a win for investors uh, from this moment forward. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, Todd, that's, uh, that's good stuff. Thank you for Thanks for your thanks for for walking me through this, and hopefully our listeners. Hopefully y'all enjoyed it. Um, just a reminder, uh, a couple of reminders. First off, um, please visit podcast.fool.com and uh, listen to our super podcast. That's what we're calling it, the super podcast. Um, it's basically discover. It's your chance to discover ten of our analysts' favorite books and enter for your chance to win an investing library. Where we, um, I think, I, I want to say it's to ten people. We will give them those ten books. Um, so that's uh, that's something pretty cool to uh, sign up for. I always like free stuff, and I like free reading stuff particularly. Um, and also, as always, important to remember that. Uh, here at the Motley Fool, we don't believe people should buy or sell stocks just based on what they hear. Um, Todd and I may have positions in companies that we've discussed, although I, I don't think you and I do uh, this week, um, yeah, given how bearish we are on them. Um, 
And The Motley Fool may have recs for or against companies that we mentioned. So always, always, always do your own due diligence. Do not buy or sell something just based on what you hear. Uh, It's the right way to invest. It's the smart way to invest. And here's to happy returns. Thanks, everyone, and Fool on. Fool on. 